0: Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. You may have noticed a new logo for The Good Life Podcast. The show has moved from the Investor's Podcast Network to the Real-Time Podcast Network. Not much will change. We do have some new music, but the topics we cover, the guests we invite on, our mission remains to continue to learn, be curious, and pursue the life well-lived. My guest this week is time management and productivity expert, Paul Burton. I've known Paul for over 10 years, and at the beginning of the interview, I tell the story of how we met. Let's just say my time management practices at that time were a mess, and he helped me regain command of my day. Our time is our most precious resource, and it's a huge challenge in today's world to protect it and maximize it to get the most out of life. Paul's got some great advice and strategies for how to do just that. If you want more focus in your day, if you want to get more done and feel better, then grab a pen and paper to take notes and get ready. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Paul as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Paul Burton. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Paul Burton, welcome to The Good Life. Thanks, Sean. Well, it's great to have you here. And I thought I'd start with a little story to provide some context for the audience around how we met, because we met about 10 years ago. It was on an airplane. I was coming from the East Coast. It was actually out of New York, flying from New York to Seattle. And we happened to sit down next to each other on a cross-country flight. And I told you a little bit about what I did around leadership development and training and facilitating and helping organizations. And and you told me a little bit about what you do, helping people with time management, with productivity, managing their day. I naturally had a lot of questions for you. You had questions for me. It ended up being kind of a friendship was born that day, which was great. But I asked for a little help uh, because I was feeling very stressed out at that moment. I had uh, started a company a few years before that. A lot was on my shoulders. I was not only the founder and CEO, but I was the the main salesperson. And I had done all these sales calls on the East Coast that week. I'd gotten onto the plane. Of course, I was behind on my email. I was behind on voicemail. I had two kids at home that I had to get back to, and my wife, and my so I had family pressures. And I get on this plane. I'm just feeling really stressed out. And you started to talk to me about well, how do I manage my day? How do I go about managing my tasks. And it ended up being a four-hour coaching session in a lot of ways across the country. Uh, you took a look at my email. I'll never forget this. I pulled up my email, and I think I had over a 1,000 emails in my inbox. You helped me start to go through it. And I learned something called triage, how to triage my email. You taught me about batching my email, which I hope we get into some of these concepts. About 500 emails in, I found an email from. A potential client, and this is what really hit me. It was an email that said something like hey we 're really interested in your services and you know it was it could have been a really big deal, but for whatever reason, I was so overwhelmed and so stressed out that I just totally dropped the ball on that and, and that 's when it hit me that not only do I need some help around time management and productivity, but there's real business impact by not being in command of your day, by not being able to manage your time effectively. It was a wake-up call. We started working together after that. And I know you work with a number of people across the country and you've written, uh, I don't know how many books now, 10 books maybe on time management and productivity. So that's how we met. It had a huge impact on my life. And I'm I'm hoping we can explore some of those concepts today. So maybe we could start with you know, wherever you want to start as far as time management and productivity, how do you think about it? You know, what are some of the really big concepts that people, if they can tackle, can have a huge impact in their life?
1: Yeah, I think that you hit on two key components in the story, and and I do remember that flight, and I remember a lot of things about it that were interesting, and then maybe it was because it was a seminal moment in meeting somebody that, as you pointed out, we've become friends over the years, but. Two things in particular are important in my work with people. One is that if we're going to work, and in this context, I mean, earn a living. So we're going to go to work or we're going to run our own companies, or we have things that must get done in order to provide for ourselves and our families and all the things we do, then that's going to take time. And- Time is a very limited non-renewable resource. It just ticks inexorably forward. And we can't get more of it. We can't borrow, beg, buy anymore. So we have this limited set of non-renewable resource. And if we're going to have to, and by have to, I don't mean choose to have to, I mean, it's just the reality of the world we live in, work to earn a living, then why not like that more? I mean, this is time that's never coming back so if we can enjoy what we do more then we're making better use of our the time we have in our life and i've always i'm a contrarian by probably genetics anyway but i've always wondered why we have to not like work and i don't mean every day and i don't mean every moment we're doing it but if work is a proverbial four-letter word then we're exchanging a whole bunch of our life most of our adult lives, frankly, for a time that we don't like. And I'm not good with that. So as a premise, we have to think about, how could I make this more enjoyable? And then there's a lot of science behind that that shows people who are more engaged with their work, who enjoy what they do more, tend to do better work, they do it sooner, they're they're more positive influence, not just in the workplace, but at home and in the community. So there's a lot of fallout there, but you got to get back to this fundamental blocking and tackling philosophy, as opposed to a big picture philosophy, it's this blocking and tackling that we're trying to make most, if not every day, as enjoyable as possible. And the second part of that is, from your story, is this idea of noise. So the the name of the consultancy has been Quiet Spacing. And the reason that I named the company, the consultancy, Quiet Spacing was... We have a lot of noise. We have noise externally in our world. And I'm not just talking about traffic noise or the backup of the garbage truck beep beep, but just this idea of people interrupting us and the exterior world interfering with our focus. And then we have the internal noise that also interferes with our focus. And so when we quiet those spaces down, the external world and the internal world, as much as we can, we get more focused, and we've all experienced this, where we're highly focused on something. We tend to do very good work. We tend to do it more efficiently, so sooner, so we do sooner better, and when we bounce out of that moment, whether it was five minutes or 15 minutes or two hours, we kind of pop back into the world. It's almost like we, a little rubber ducky popping to the surface. We're like, oh my gosh, look at all this noise again. We look for ways. Simple ways to get more focused more often so that we like what we do more because anytime you get something done or anytime you feel accomplished, you are enjoying your time better and there's just a lot of little ways to do it, not big systems you know not trying to reinvent the wheel, but really just take small chunks out of it and hope that we aggregate these small pieces of improvement into a much larger more rewarding day.
0: Well, I agree with you there, Paul. And I, I just want to emphasize a couple of points. Getting more enjoyment out of work is so important. I mean, we, as you mentioned, we spend so much time at work. And it's a challenge for many of us to, to get that enjoyment when we feel stressed, when we feel behind, You know, our tasks are piling up, when it feels sort of impossible to get through whatever we've set up for ourselves that day when at the end of the day, we don't feel like we got the big stuff done that we wanted to get done, or when we have back-to-back meetings. I've talked to people in corporate America where their schedules are just back-to-back and they're reacting. And all of these things lead to, I don't want to say the complete opposite of enjoyment, but it's definitely stress. It's definitely not ideal. So I want to talk about some of the strategies to control some of that, because I feel like we're up against a challenge there. And it relates to the second point about reducing noise. And I'm going to get a little philosophical here, but when I look back on some of the best episodes in the last year, when I look back on some of the best writers and philosophers in our culture, it comes down to often living a good life or enjoying your life really comes down to, sometimes people call it peace or tranquility. Ryan Holiday wrote a book called Stillness is the Key. And I'm not saying we, we're gonna be meditating all day at work, but if we can carve out that stillness or what you call quiet, a quiet space to focus, that I found is important to getting the critical work done and to feel like at the end of the day you've really got something done.
1: I will add my component to those, you know, all the people who actually are probably white, far wiser and brighter than I is The idea that you feel in command of your work, or you're in charge of what you're doing, as opposed to being, you know, kind of at the end of the tail of the dog that's wagging, improves your state of mind. So it can be stressful, it can be hard, it can be demanding. But if your sense of the work is something you command, the word I like to use is command, if you feel in command of your day, you're leaning into it better. You're again, you can think of it as a big rush of wave or wind or flood or you know the tides and you're just leaning into it, you're working to do what you can and if you're making decisions on what you're going to do and focus on in some ways that naturally quiets down your space. It's a sense of where we are and how significant our influence is on our day. And I get very granular on this and, and, and many times quip it out a bit so that people stop and think about it. And one of my quips is, no, it really is all about you. In a world where we're not supposed to, and especially currently not supposed to be about us, we're supposed to be about everybody else and care about everything. I tend to flip the the switch on that. I tend to you know reverse that and go, wait, 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 wait. If you're miserable and unproductive how enjoyable is it to be around you how good are you for others if you're miserable I can help you get better I can't do a lot to shift a huge ship I can't turn the whole ship but I could sure get a whole bunch of people on the ship to want to turn the ship and then maybe we'll get the ship turned but if I start with oh we got to change the world instead of change you Likely it is success, and people have done that, they have changed the world. Is it not? But I don't see myself as that person, I see myself as someone who helps you change your world, and then maybe, maybe we'll get some collective out of that.
0: Well, let's talk about some of those mm-hmm. strategies, or tactics, or new habits we can adopt to make those changes and start to gain back that command of our day and carve out a little bit of that focus and the stillness to to really get work done and then feel good about that. And you know, we're working against all this technology. One thing that comes up often is email. Maybe we could start there because it was something you know way back on our first plane flight together, that was the the technology at the time, and I, I think it still is fairly dominant, that was the technology that was sort of incringing on my day. It I didn't feel mm-hmm. in command of my email. It felt like I'm getting hundreds of emails. I'm reacting all the time. That felt like the opposite of being in command. The control was with everybody else, just demanding my time. So how do we flip that script? What should we do with a technology like that?
1: So... Let's take technology as a tool in general, and we'll we'll use email as kind of the you know the point and shoot part of it. But all tools have a value. And in particular, our modern tools, and by that I mean mobile devices of all kinds. So to me, a, a device, a mobile device is anything I can carry around, even if it's a little awkward. So a laptop qualifies as well as of course tablets and and phones or or the smart device whatever we're calling them these days all of those things are mobile and so what that means is we can never step away from them most of us don't we take them with us it's kind of the whole point now you choose it's always a choice on how you decide to use that tool the first premise of my work is your Always making choices about that. So choose to use it better. Example the new email alert, the new message alert. In fact, every alert that comes into our day needs to be challenged as to its value. And alerts aren't always just audible, they're visual, they're quiet, but they exist. Badging is an example of an alert. Those all distract. Every single one of them distract, which is noisy. Distractions are noisy. So we have to start deciding whether it's a necessary or unnecessary distraction. What people want to do is lump all distraction into one category. That's not true. There are two kinds of distractions: necessary and unnecessary. A necessary distraction, maybe new email just for the purposes of an argument, right? Just to, cause people will usually rail against me about how they have to do this. I'm like, well, first of all, it's a choice. You don't have to do anything. Well, I, you know, eh, fine. Let's just give you that one. I don't want to argue with you. I want to help you. But do you really need to know how many new posts on or on Facebook on your phone? No, that's an unnecessary, you get the little six or the 12 or whatever, or someone posted up, that's unnecessary, at least in the context of work right now. Facebook is a personal item. It is, unless you literally work for Facebook, it is a personal choice to have apps like that on your phone. I don't have a horse in the race about whether you have it on your phone. And there are people who say you shouldn't. But if you're going to, don't let it distract you. I will guarantee your listeners, that they will never wish they spent more time on Facebook in their lives. They will always wish they'd met, spent more time with family, friends, outside, inside doing things I love to do. Yancey Strickler was the founder of Kickstarter, one of the founders of Kickstarter. And 10 years ago, probably I read a quote of his They asked him why he didn't have social media on his phone. And I thought his answer was illustrative. And I'm paraphrasing to some degree, but it's out there if you look. He said, the the more time you spend in the stream of other people's thoughts, the less time you spend in your own. And I thought, and again, he's dicing this idea that time is not renewable. So if you spend that time, you don't have it to do something else. It's gone forever in your whole life. So thinking about necessary versus unnecessary, right? so if you want to argue with me about how you have to look at all this email, then you better be doing very aggressive alert management on your phone for unnecessary stuff. I would challenge the idea of all email is necessary. No, it's, most of it's junk. And I don't mean junk in terms of spam. I mean, most of it's everybody replying to something else that you're not really needing to know, and certainly not right now. Maybe you need to know it, but you don't need to know it in the middle of working on another project. And that's another allocation issue. If you are out just surfing on Insta or Facebook or any of the social medias and ignoring email, yeah, that's probably bad. But if you're working on one project and another, an email related to another project starts distracting you, why is that other project more important than this project? And why are you making that decision a thousand times a day? Why not just say for 15 minutes, I'm going to work on this project. That's taking command of those 15 minutes and turn off the alerts. Just close Outlook. It's okay. It'll open back up every single time. Promise. For example, right now, my phone, because we're doing an interview together, is set for do not disturb, which means I'm getting email. It's a work day. It's a beginning of a work day for me. It's in the middle of the week. We just came off a holiday weekend a couple of days ago. It's busy. People want to talk to me. They want me to schedule events with them. They want me to do things with them. But for right now, they're second. Most people would respond to that. Well, yeah, Paul, but you're in an interview or you're in a meeting. You shouldn't be looking at your phone while you're in a meeting. I agree. So why are you looking at your phone while you're trying to work on another project? Because I'd get caught in the meeting, so that's bad. Well, of course it's bad, but it's probably just as bad when you're not getting caught. So turn off alerts. Even if it's just between necessary and unnecessary, decide how much time to allocate to a particular effort dynamically. I'm gonna spend 15 minutes on this. I'm only gonna allow meetings, you mentioned meetings and the overload, to go 30 minutes. Or 45. If you control the scheduling of those in any fashion, just cut them in half. I've never, ever been in a meeting, a one hour meeting that didn't take an hour. And I've never, ever been in a 30 minute meeting that didn't take 30 minutes. People go, Oh, well, we got to have one hour meetings. Like, no, you don't. There's nothing I've ever seen. There's no legislation on earth that I'm aware of that says meetings must be an hour. Make them 45 minutes. Heck. Buy yourself some time, take breaks, schedule this time between meetings, like hard book on your calendar, a 15 minute wedge that you're just going to take a break. Taking breaks is vitally important to the way the brain works, not productivity, but the actual way the brain works. The brain is a sprinter, not a marathoner. We have to take short breaks periodically throughout the day so our brain can recharge. And running from meeting to meeting to meeting doesn't allow for that. And what it does is it increases fatigue, more balls get dropped, and less gets done simply because the fatigue builds up. And we all have that feeling, like you just kind of zone out, or you get the heavy eyelid thing, or whatever it happens to be, just all of a sudden you snap back to after two minutes. That's your brain deciding you're taking a break, whether you chose that or not. We all do it. So why not understand that every two hours, maybe three, play with it. You need 10 minutes. So just put it on the calendar. That way it can't get overrun by someone else's scheduling needs. They start scheduling your four-an-hour meetings, push back and say, you only have a half hour. They don't know what else you're doing. They don't know you're taking a little napper. Don't tell them. And people think I'm being wacky about this stuff, but it's true. If you just start telling them, I can't be there for an hour, stop talking, see what they say. They may even say, you know, you don't really need to be there at all. But until you challenge and command the time, until you make small incremental shifts in the way you view your day, it's like a chess game every day, right? Nothing changes. Nothing changes until you do something.
0: Well, there's so much there. I want to double click on and go a little deeper. But I I first want to just emphasize this idea of necessary versus unnecessary. That whole concept is eye-opening. It's not an either or. It's not, we can't have any messages or we have to let them all in. It's let's figure out what's really important and be very discretionary about what we allow to interrupt our day. Constantly question that. Go back again and again. If you're feeling like there's too many interruptions, hold on a second. Do I need to go back and look at what I thought was necessary? A lot of what interrupts our day is not necessary in the moment. Yes, I get emails that are important during the day that I need to get to, but do I need to get to it right now while I'm in the middle of something else? No, I usually don't. That gets to this idea of switching costs and multitasking, which I want to talk about too because there's been all these studies about the cost to move from one focused task to switch and go to something else and then try to switch back. That's something that you kind of opened my eyes to as you examined how I previously was kind of running my day, was how much of my day was activity going back and forth and switching versus just getting stuff done?
1: Right. So we'll, we'll hit on two topics, the, the, the revisiting of necessary versus unnecessary and, and the analysis that individuals should go through. And then the second thing we'll talk about for a moment is the multitasking and the inefficiency of attempts to multitask. And the reason I want to just, I'll use your phrase, double click back onto the necessary, unnecessary is to draw an analogy and to challenge your listeners to think about it this way. It's called the privacy paradox, but we have the sense of privacy in our lives that we do, we're we entitled and and within the legal structure, we are. And I was a former lawyer, as you know, we are entitled to a great amount of privacy. And uh, HIPAA is an example of that for medical records and things like that. And, you know, you you open up uh, a website and it will ask you if you have your browser set. So-and-so wants to allow your location. They want to know where you are, whether it's the Home Depot, wants to know where you are. Now, the ostensible, they're not trying to send somebody to your house, what they want to do is improve the likelihood that you'll buy something at a local store of theirs. So they're using location services to identify the closest Home Depot to you. Now, I don't know about statistics here, but I routinely say no to that. When I download apps and I open up the app for the first time, many, time it wants, many times it wants to send me notifications, to which I summarily say no, and they want, many times they want to know, use location services, know where I am, to which I also say summarily, no, there's a convenience to it. Yelp wants to, know, so it'll tell me what restaurants are in my area that serve donuts or whatever. Sure. But I can just as easily type in Seattle or something. I mean, I don't, I don't need that facilitation if it means giving up my privacy. So we all have an index there, right? Some people are less or more concerned about privacy. We should think about interruptions the same way. Would you protect your time the way you protect your sense of privacy? And, and if you're a two on your time and an eight on your privacy index out of 10, then I would suggest reconsidering how important time is to you. And how much you would protect time, would you protect it to the same level you want to protect your privacy? Because again, non-renewable can't get it back. So think about it in that way, align it with something that you feel very strongly about, and then reanalyze this question of, do I need this email right now? Do I need that Facebook alert? The Facebook alert? Do I need these things in order to achieve the things I'm trying to achieve? Cycling down to multitasking. My favorite tongue-in-cheek reference in seminars that I do is how many people think texting and driving is safe? Because to me, that is both figuratively and literally rubber on the road. If you can't hurdle two tons of metal down the road without paying 100% attention safely, then why do you think you can do anything else safely or better or efficiently, maybe is the right word? Now, the consequences of texting and driving and, and causing great injury are huge. So, yes, we need to really drum in that texting and driving is not safe. But the biochemical and the physiological and the psychological elements of texting and driving are no different than any other multitasking. In one of the studies I refer to in my t- talks and my seminars, is the Stanford one, Where they coined, I believe they coined the term switch costing. And switch costing, the concept of it, it actually comes out of economics, right? So if you run a manufacturing facility and you need to shut down the manufacturing line to switch something, to change, let's say you're going to paint Ford trucks, you're going to paint Ford trucks white today because we're going to paint 1,100 of them, right? So we're going to get it all set up for white. Well, tomorrow we're going to we're going to go with black. Well, we have to shut down the paint line, cleanse all the lines, right, because it's tough to get black from white. We have to reset the system. Well, that takes time. Your brain works the same way. To go from A to B takes time, and the time it takes to get from A to B is called a switch cost. Now, our brains do it, fortunately, a lot faster than a manufacturing line, but it still takes time, and it aggregates, and it's time switching and I'm going to pound on this concept. That's time that never comes back. It's always gone. So the more you're switching, and you'd be surprised how quickly it aggregates, and it has a little bit to do with the difficulty or the complexity of the work that you're doing. So I do an exercise in my one of my seminars where we spell a word and count its letters out at the same time. So you start by spelling the word with the first letter. The word I use is inefficient because it's a big, long word. And it helps. It's I up top, and then you come down and put a one with a piece of paper and a pencil. I one and two e three, right? So, counting is a rote mechanism. It's a fairly low order activity. It doesn't take a lot of brain. But spelling a concept, a conceptual word like inefficient, it's hard. It takes a lot of horsepower. In that exercise, two things happen. One, when they're doing that exercise, going from letter to number to letter to number, timed, an audience of say a hundred people the average completion time is somewhere in the low 20 seconds. It takes about 20 seconds. And people misspell, they rarely miscount, but they routinely misspell the word. So that's a mistake at a 23-second interval. There may be two or three mistakes along the way. Now, when we do the exercise again, we change the rule. We say, now we're just going to spell the word first, I-N-E-F-F, right? Then we're going to go down and count the letters, one, two, three, four, five. Two things happen. One, the average time for an audience of, say, 100 people to do the second exercise is half, 11, 12 seconds. I make a joke out of it, but no one makes any mistakes. So the two components to switch costing and to trying to multitask, which is functionally just switching, is it takes a lot longer and you greatly improve your risk of error. And that it takes about twice as long and your risk of error goes up about 40%. So, you get more stress because you're making mistakes. It takes longer because you're trying to do two things at once. And the simplest thing to do is one, which is back to this distraction thing. The more you allow a distraction, the more you're switching in and out of tasks. Should you partially or mostly close your door? Should you turn off alerts periodically? Should you go find a quiet place to work, facing away from any motion because your eye will naturally distract to the motion? Simple gets done, right? Little teeny things.
0: You know, one that sort of snuck up on me is just keeping my email up on my screen. You know, even if I was telling myself I'm focusing on something else, maybe I'm writing a piece. You know, I'm trying to, I'm working on a blog post or something. I'm, I really need to focus on it. So I'm writing on part of my screen, but another part of my screen, or maybe I have two monitors going, email is there. And so even though maybe my email alerts are no longer popping up because email is sort of within my field of vision. When a new email arrives, I can kind of see it. And I find that I'm never fully focused on the important thing I need to do, which is writing, because I'm now reacting to email. What do you do in those situations?
1: Two parts to the answer to that. You mentioned this at the very beginning, and I'm glad we're back to it because I think it helps. So one is there's a visual distraction movement of any kind distracts us. And it distracts us at a pretty wide range. It's 120 degrees. Peripheral vision extends about 120 degrees from any point we're looking at, which is good because we don't walk into traffic. And I'm being very serious. We see things coming, so we step out of the way. This is instinctual. We don't decide when to have peripheral vision. It just is there. So, if you have multiple screens or two applications up on a screen and something changes on one of those, you're going to see it. And again, instinctual response is to look at it. That's what we do. This is baseline stuff. These are not decisions that we're making. It's what happens. And I'm okay with that. And I think your listeners and the people I work with need to understand there's a certain amount of control you don't have. And then provide for it, right? Allow for it. So one thing I tell people is, close the. Just don't close. You don't even have to close the. Let's say it's Outlook. You don't have to close the app. You can just reduce it down to the to the taskbar down below. It's just there. It's right there. Look, it's not going anywhere. It doesn't go anywhere until you tell it to, right? But it's there, and you can go back to it anytime you want. Just pop on it, up it comes, right? You can swap them in and out. You can let screens go dark you like to have multiple monitors, just turn the the, the screensaver on. It's just there and you got a little floaty thing. And your brain doesn't care if it's the same little floaty thing. It knows, oh, that's the floaty thing. Don't pay attention to that, right? And then you can focus on the thing in front of you. So the other component that filters into our world and the reason these alerts are baked in, literally baked in to your apps, and they want to turn them on the minute you open a new app is what is in the modern vernacular called fear of missing out, FOMO. FOMO is a biochemical reaction in your brain. It's not a conceptual idea. It's cortisol releases into the brain whenever there's a, a risk reward scenarios. So you have an alert come up, and the first thing your brain does is start to worry about it. What am I missing? What am I missing? It's that edge. Adju- like if you carry your mobile device in your pocket and it's got a vibrate alert, and it vibrates. Even if there's no audible or visual, you've got the physical vibration, let's say it's in your front pocket. You start thinking about it. I wonder what that was? I wonder what that was? I wonder what that was? That's cortisol being released into your bloodstream. That's it's the anxiety chemical put into the bloodstream. And then the other part is the endorphin release when you look and it's your you know, your uncle Jim sent you an email. Oh, Jim, I love Jim, right? That's the reward. that's the endorphin is the reward and the cortisol is the anxiety. This goes on all the time. It's been going on long before Stephen Jobs invented the iPhone and Al Gore invented the superhighway. It's been going on for millions of years. The applications, both very intentionally and to some degree inadvertently, take advantage of that. turn off the alerts and understand you still have responsibility, which is a batch processing psychology. So, the batch processing mechanism, take a series of items and deal with them in larger batches as opposed to individually. The greatest working example for those of us beyond the age of about 12 is we used to get mail and it would come, this was a physical thing that happened. Mail would show up, let's say at work once or twice a day, and there would be a pile of it to your inbox. We would take that mail out of our inbox, and we would go through it all. What's this? What's this? What's this? What's this? Right. That's a batch process behavior. That's not how we deal with email, most people. What we would do, if you if you analogize to that physical mail, what we do with email, that's really quite ironic, is we have it in our little inbox over here on our desk, you know, in our little tiered stacking system or on the corner of the desk where the mail carrier put it. And it would be like this. It would be like grabbing the top item, the one that's most recent, right? The one that's come in the latest. We would open it, look at it, and put it back in the pile because that's what we do with email. We just leave it in the inbox. And then we would like maybe shuffle through and find another one that kind of maybe it was important, open it, put it back in the pile. It's just insane how we do this stuff, right? And we all do it. Don't get me wrong. Everybody does this. So what, what if we just batched it? What if we would look at that pile, go through, maybe it's five items, maybe it's a heavy, it's Monday, it's a lot of mail, right? 20 items, maybe it's, and so what I'm saying is, instead of days, we're talking about batch periods. What's a batch period? Yeah, 15 minutes is probably a good minimum, maybe 10 for some people. Maybe it's 30 minutes, maybe it's 27 minutes. Heck, you can set a timer on your computer and your phone to tell you when to check mail. I mean, there's a hundred ways to leverage the tool. The idea of it is go through the email, that have come in since the last time you checked. Do it all at once so you know what the most important thing is, because it might be the last one. It could be the third one. You don't know until you see them all, and you can't make any intelligent decision till you see them all. And then start unsubscribing to things, ask to get off of groups you don't need. Them. I mean, if you're getting a bunch of flood of crap, which we all do, get off of it all. Take command of that.
0: You know, One of the things uh, that I was thinking about as you were talking about FOMO and the endorphin release when an email arrives or we get an alert. I've heard it described as a dopamine rush to our brain, kind of that feel-good chemical. is a a talk I heard Tristan Harris give. Mm -hmm. And Tristan, I think he founded, I might not get this right, but it's like the Center for Humane Technology or something like that. And he's a former engineer in Silicon Valley. I want to say Google. He let down the veil of what's going on in silicon valley as far as designing technology to get our attention it's like a slot machine you know when we pull up our phone the way he describes it is it's like pulling the arm on a slot machine and we don't know what the reward is going to be until we do it and and that's why people get so addicted to slot machines because it feeds off of our natural desire to find out what's new and to find out what the reward is and and we're programmed to do that these technology companies know that so I get a little satisfaction out of knowing that, hey, they're trying to take this time from me. Time is what I have. It's my currency. It's how I live my life. I'm going to protect that. And it gives me a little, I don't know, maybe courage, inspiration, something, motivation to know that, hey, there's people out there that are trying to take this currency, which is my life, by the way. It is, this is what I have, and I'm going to protect it and fight back a little bit carve some things out and be more strict about what's necessary and what's unnecessary, be more strict and disciplined about each meeting and how much time I have between meetings and what needs to get done today. And am I putting those blocks of time in there? And then really focusing to get it done. Because when I do that, at the end of the day, I feel so much better. And And this is kind of an important component to time management and productivity is how emotional you feel at the end of the day to know that you sort of won that battle. You did... The important things that you could do that day. Yeah, it wasn't perfect, but you walk away and you shut down at the end of the day to go be with your spouse or or a friend or your kids or do something in your community or some hobby or something and knowing that that work part of your day, you did it. And then you can go back again tomorrow and battle again. That idea of battling Silicon Valley to me sort of inspires me.
1: Mm A couple of data points for anybody who's interested. Netflix series documentary called The Social Dilemma is largely focused on Tristan Harris and his work. In many ways, it's terrifying. It's also knowledge breeds command. The more you know, the more you're able to manage. I encourage people to watch it not because it's terrifying. They tend to focus on social media on that particular documentary, but I would take the word social out and understand that any media operates on the same principles and to think that they don't, people that say the news media or any other form of entertainment media, whether it's television shows, anything else, to think that they can't hire the same experts to employ the same techniques is naive. Time is the currency of life. Memories are snapshots in time. He or she who collects the most good memories wins. I wrote that 20-some years ago. I still believe it. I will never wish I had a crappy day at work again at the end. I'll always wish it was a better day at work. I always always wish it was fewer days at work. But understanding that coming to the end of a race, a marathon, which could be every day, is not a product of just getting to the finish line. It's a product of everything you did to get to that finish line, both before the race even began as well as throughout the race. You can't sprint your way through a marathon. So maximizing and taking command of how you do it, you may, you may still be exhausted when you cross the finish line that day, but you will be proud of the fact that you did it your way. And that's that self-satisfaction. That's the, I'm happier even if I get home and I'm exhausted. At least it was my day and I ran it the way I wanted to. And it's not a puppies and daisies thing in my world. I don't believe in puppies and daisies, which, you know, the puppies running through the field and it's all going to be, it's commercial for whatever drug they're trying to sell me. It's way more about knowing that I chose how to work in that case. And we don't just get on the bus and hope it stops somewhere we want to be. We build the itinerary. We look for the roadmap. We figure out what we want to do with our free time. We just need to do that with work. And we have a little less control in the big picture. We have people we report to. We have things that have to get done. But we can choose the roadmap on that.
0: Yeah, there are things under our control. Starting to Understand them. That's step one. And then taking control of what we can and making the changes so we move in the direction of more productivity, better use of our time, feeling better at the end of the day because we got the right stuff done can have a huge impact on someone over the course of a week, a month, a year. We talked about distraction as being one of those key things. We talked about Looking at you know necessary versus unnecessary distra- distraction, reducing the switching cost between moving back and forth between things, reducing the noise in our env- environment, uh, whether it's physical or digital, that's coming in and preventing us from focusing on important work. We talked about batching our processes, doing things that are similar all at once, so we can be really productive and then moving on to the next thing. Well, this has been a great conversation, Paul. I really enjoyed talking to you and revisiting some of these stories, and it's always a reminder for me of what I can do each day to get better. This is the kind of thing that you never... It's like staying in physical shape. You always have to come back to it and revisit it and work on the practices and habits. Where can people find out more about you and the work you do with helping people with time management and being more productive?
1: So the website is www.quietspacing.com, Paul at quietspacing.com will always get to me, and I'd be happy to chat with anybody that wants to talk more.
0: Great. Paul, thank you for being on The Good Life. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.